Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Let's pray. God, as we open your word this morning, we are eager to see Christ. We pray, Lord Jesus Christ, that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. We know that you are not just a teacher who lived long ago, but that you died, you were buried, and you rose. And that even today you are alive, even as alive as we are, even more alive than we are. And so we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit you might dwell with us now, that you might teach us from your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What is the church? It's a question I want to think about with you this morning. What is the church? Why does it exist? Does the church have a place in a modern world like ours? I mean, we know we need churches because, well, you have to have a place to get married. And they're sure good to have around in times of national crisis to gather people together and focus one another on things that are more important. But, but really, what is a church? Uh, practically speaking, what, what impact does it have on our lives Monday through Friday? If you look at your sermon notes, which is this insert in your bulletin, it says Ephesians 1 to 2 on the front. If you could take that out. 1, Ephesians 1, 1 to 2. You'll see at the top, there's the question I want to sort of get ourselves thinking with this morning. What is the church? Why the church? What's its purpose? All related to the question of what it is. And I'd like to think with you about four reasons as we begin here, why we need to be asking this question today. Why this is a very apropos question in today's culture and at this moment in history. Uh, Four reasons, and so if you want to take notes, you can. The first reason why we need to be asking what is the church is because of anti-institutionalism. That's a fun word. See if we can spell that one. Anti-institutionalism. Since the 1960s, uh, probably would be when this shift happened, there was a great change in our culture as uh, a new generation rose up that that questioned uh, the establishment. And and that spirit has continued on to the next following generations. People today distrust politics. They distrust the government. Some distrust the military. There's a distrust of corporations and big business. There's a distrust of the church. People look askance at institutions today more than they did ever before. They, They distrust, they wonder, they question. And so because of that, it raises the question, you know, can the church as an institution uh, really be valid and trusted in today's society? Many people have been burned by the church. Certainly we've seen the scandals recently in, in our part of the world in, in the Roman Catholic Church, and, and I just cite that as one example, uh, as people saying, aha, there's the church, we knew it, a bunch of hypocrites, 
You know, they, they talk a lot of talk, but we know there's corrupt things going on inside the church. And so when people see that, it sort of feeds this idea that, that institutions are not trustworthy, including the church. And maybe you've been burned by the church. Maybe you've been hurt by a church. And it's amazing how people who are hurt once by a church will turn off the church from their lives for years and years because of some scars that they've received. As a result of, of this kind of climate in which we live, uh, American religious impulse has turned inward. So today, people, rather than being a part of religious institutions, uh, are more spiritual, personally and privately. I'm sure you've heard this phrase before. I've heard it many times. In fact, I heard it just recently from a person at the gym where I work out. Uh, the person said, you know, I'm not very religious. I don't go to church. But I believe in God, and I'm very spiritual. And so people have made a new way of talking about God and religion and spirituality. Yeah, I, I don't believe in the church, but, but I've sort of privatized so today there is a, a privatized, personalized, almost designer religion. And it's cool and it's in vogue to you know, pick and choose and make up for yourself your own little belief system. And if it, you know, here's the phrase, if it works for you, great. So it's working for you, so just do that. And something opposite works for me and that's fine. So that religion has become a very personalized, privatized, individualistic sort of thing. <clears throat> and so in this climate, we have to ask the question, is there really any place for the church? I mean, is, should it exist anymore? Why do we need the church if everyone can sort of design their own worldview, religiously speaking? There's another cultural fact that I think begs, uh, raises this question, what is the church? There's anti-institutionalism. The second ism is nominalism. Nominalism. And my experience has been that this is very prevalent in New England. I can't uh, back this up statistically or with scientific research, but, but I sense this here. You know, it kind of goes like this. It's like, well, what religion are you? Oh, I'm Roman Catholic. I'm uh, Episcopalian. Oh, I'm Methodist. Oh, really? Uh, you know, wh which Roman Catholic or Episcopalian or Methodist church do you go to? Oh, I haven't gone to church in years. You know, like, what? Well, would you maybe think about coming to my church? We've been having a great time. There's a great program here I'd like you to hear about. Oh, no, I couldn't do that. I'm not Baptist. I'm you know, Catholic, Episcopalian, Methodist. I can't go to a Baptist church or another church. And it's like, but you don't go anyway. <laughs> but, but it's, that, it's that, that mindset of, you know, this is my cultural background. And so I find that in New England, there's, there's a sense in which the church is part of the cultural backdrop of which we live, though it may not affect people's lives in any practical way day to day. The church is kind of like that black and white photo of your great-grandmother hanging in the hallway, right? It doesn't really impact your life very much, and you walk by, and maybe every once in a while you go, oh, yeah, there's, there's great-grandmother, and, and it's, it's there. Would you ever get rid of it? Of course not. You could never get rid of it because it's an important part of your heritage, but it really has nothing to do with your life on a day-to-day -day basis. That's that kind of culturalized Christianity. And because of that, it raises the question, you know, what is the church? Is it just sort of a cultural heirloom that's been passed down and we have it around because it's probably good to have, but we don't know what it is or why it is. <clears throat> but I think this befuddlement about the church not only exists in the culture around us, I think it exists within the church, even within the evangelical church. Which brings me to my third ism. We have institutionalism, nominalism, and number three, inside the church, a pragmatism. Let me explain what I mean by that. There is a lot of stuff being written today about the church by Christians. But a lot of it is how-to. How-to 
grow a church, how to manage a growing church, how to introduce change into a church, how to be a more effective leader of a church, uh, how to market a church, you know, how to do worship in a church. And there's a lot of how-tos. Is that stuff bad? No. I read that stuff. You know, I want to know how to manage a growing church. I really need help with that. Uh, you know, this is a skill that I need to learn. But you keep reading all the how-tos and the how-tos, and, and you wonder, but what is the church? And it's almost like we've taken that for granted, which is always a dangerous thing with truth. And, and we no longer are asking, what is the church? And we're just sort of figuring out how to work with the organization. And a lot of the stuff that's out there is good stuff, but, you know, it's not particularly Christian. I read it and I go, yeah, this is just kind of the latest corporate management theory sort of taken over to the church. Can we learn things from that? Of course we can. But, you know, what is the church? And, and if, I, if I can't know what the church is, then I have no way to assess techniques, models, and cultural wisdom. We have to know what the church is. And that leads me to the, my fourth point that I couldn't figure out an ism for. <laughs> uh, number four, growth at South Shore Baptist Church-ism. I don't, whatever, whatever you call that. There's anti-institutionalism that raises the question. There's nominalism. There's a pragmatism within our, our church that's so focused on making the church happen that we don't ask what it is. And the fourth one is there's growth happening at South Shore Baptist, which I think makes it a very pertinent question for us. I mean, I think it's just such an exciting time to be at the church right now. The church is growing literally, you know, literally every week. There are new people coming through the doors who've never been here before. Every week we get visitor cards from people who are new, and I can't think of a week where that hasn't happened in, in recent memory. You know, God is doing something exciting here. You feel it, I feel it. You know, it's just sort of an energy in the air. And it's so fun to be on something that's working, isn't it? It's just like, whoa, this is great. You know, everyone just kind of feels it. Uh, just to give you a sense of, of the growth that's going on, look at the bottom of the sermon notes. This is uh, sort of some strategic planning we were doing. December 2000, the elders sat down and said, you know, we should think about a five-year plan and where we're going to go from here. And so we said, okay, the church is on a growth trend, so let's project three scenarios of where the church might be five years from now. And then number two, if that's where the church is, what kind of ministries and programs should we plan to help minister to that many people? You know, what, kind of church, what does the church have to look like to effectively minister to X number of people in five years? So we said, all right, conservatively, there could be 500 to 550 people here. Realistically, six to 700. Optimistically, 800 to 1,000. So then what do we do? Well, we need, and then we listed all these programs, C2, A through D. We need these things in place. Well, it's a year and nine months later. We're already at A, 1A. That's, that's our attendance. So that happened a year and nine months instead of five years. And all of the ministries you see listed here are either up and running or being ramped up as we speak. Now, I don't know, that stokes me up. I'm like, that's so cool. Look what God is doing. And it's not because of the wise planning and leadership of the pastoral staff. I mean, a lot of this stuff just kind of sprang up, and people are like, we want to start a women's ministry. And we say, oh, yeah, yes, women's ministry. That's right. It's all part of the plan here. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so it's just kind of you know, happening like this uh, in the church. It's so exciting when that's happening. It's exciting to talk about going to a third worship service. It's exciting to talk about adding on to our building but there's a danger, and the danger is that we can get excited about the growth of the church and the expansion of a church, and then forget to say, well, what is it, though, that we are? You know, what's the purpose of the church? Is the purpose of the church to grow the church? Well, no. I mean, there's something that we're supposed to be. And so my big 
concern as your pastor especially, is that as the organization and the programs and the ministries are growing, that the spiritual foundation of the church is deepening and strengthening at an even faster rate than the organizational visible structure of the church. And so we want to look into God's Word because how, does, how do we gain spiritual life? It's from the Word of God. That's the only way the church has grown. Without the Word of God, the church dies. With the teaching of the Word of God, and I mean at all levels, the church is strengthened. So it's my sort of heart's uh, uh, zeal and, and passion to make sure that, that we are growing spiritually this way so that whatever programs and ministries we're putting in place, and however many people come here, you know, whatever that is, will have a foundation upon which to be built. And that happens through the Word of God. And so we want a spiritual foundation, even more than we want programs and ministries and bricks and mortar. <clears throat> and so we need to know what is the church? Who are we supposed to be? Why are we doing this? Why do we gather here together? And the way, way we know is we look in God's Word. And I can't think of a better portion of Scripture to look at, to understand the church, than the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is the great book of the church. It's all about God's work informing the church and how the church should live and conduct itself. It's a wonderfully rich book. Just to give you some background on Ephesians, it's technically not the book of Ephesians. It's actually a letter. This was a letter that Paul wrote to Christians. If you look there at the top in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When you wrote a letter in the ancient world, you didn't sign your name at the end. You put your name first. That's how you would do it when you wrote a letter. You'd say, Jeremy, to Grandma, greetings. You know, that's how I'd write a letter to my grandma if I lived way back then. And, and you would then talk about whatever you want to talk about in the letter. So Paul is writing a letter. In fact, if you want to take out your sermon notes uh, in your bulletin, <clears throat> look on the second page. Here's some factoids about Ephesians. You see that uh, high-tech drawing of the uh, ancient Near Eastern world. You see Asia, that's modern-day Turkey. And Macedonia, there's Greece, modern-day Greece. There's Ephesus right there on the west, southwest coast of Asia. So the, the sender was Paul, and he was writing to Christians in southwestern Asia Minor, to the, the Christians who lived in the, the Ephesian area. He wrote the letter around 60 to 62 A.D. Most likely he was a prisoner when he wrote this letter, as we'll learn. And he was imprisoned around that time. Perhaps he was writing from Rome. So that means a couple things. It means, first of all, that it's a very theologically mature letter. Paul writes this at the end of his life, after he's had a whole lifetime to reflect upon what the church is and why it exists. And he's been working in the church and building the church. So it's a great letter to read to learn about the church because it's near the end of Paul's life when he's had a lot of time to... to sort of formulate his vision for the church. Not only that, it's also a great letter for us to study because it's a very general letter. One of the things about Ephesians is that uh, well, scholars think that it was a, an encyclical, that it was sent around to a lot of different churches and read in a lot of different churches. And one of the reasons they think that is because it's such a general letter. There's no specific situation mentioned here. Like if you've ever studied 1 Corinthians or Galatians, it's obvious Paul is writing to a specific problem in a specific church. But you read Ephesians and you, know, you can't find that. It's just very general. It almost reads like a, a general sermon to the churches. And so because of its general nature, it's a wonderful book for us to read. We can read it like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints on the south shore of Boston. 
the faithful in Christ Jesus. It, it, it can be read that way because it is just addressed to the church in general. In fact, when Paul writes about the church in Ephesians, he's not writing in the sense of a local church. He's writing about the, the, the general church, the, you know, the Catholic church. You know, when we say the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the, the holy Catholic church. You know, when they say that, that word Catholic means general, the general church, the universal church. And so Paul's writing about the universal church. So again, it's just a great book for us to study. But now getting down to the real issue, the main message of Ephesians. And again, if you look in your sermon notes, look at the top on page 3, the message of Ephesians. I've done a foolhardy thing here. I'm attempting to summarize this book in a couple sentences. So here it goes. If I could summarize the whole message of Ephesians in a couple sentences, here's what I'd say. Praise God for His eternal plan to restore the whole creation to Himself. A plan centering on Jesus Christ saving you to be the church. God's new people. Now, live out your new identity in Christ. That seems to me the message of Ephesians. Praise God for His eternal plan to restore the whole creation to Himself. And how does He do it? It's a plan centering on Jesus saving you to be the church, God's new people. So now, live out your new identity in Christ. That's Ephesians in a nutshell. First of all, it's God's eternal plan to restore the whole creation to Himself. Uh, The creation is broken. This world is messed up. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. It's full of evil and violence and corruption. The church is corrupt in many places. And so what are we going to do about that? Uh, Those of you who are with us recently, we've been studying Genesis. We just finished that last week. And Genesis 3 is a very depressing book. (laughs) A chapter of the Bible, I mean. It's depressing because everything goes wrong and God makes this beautiful creation and it gets ruined. And so you wonder, how is God going to fix the creation that He made? It's, It's ruined. It's distanced from Him because of sin. And the answer is, through Jesus Christ saving you to be the church, God's new people. Do you think of the church that way? How do you think of the church? Do you think of it as the epicenter of everything God is doing in the universe today to restore the universe to Himself? I I don't think of it that way very often. I think of it as the building on Main Street where I go to worship and work. I think of it as maybe a group of people. But to think of it as the center of God's saving plans for the universe? No. It, I was reading the newspaper this morning as I was eating breakfast before coming to church, and you know, headlines, Israeli tanks have surrounded uh, Arafat's compound, and they're, you know, they lobbed a shell in there, and they're trying to sort of uh, have him under siege, trying to get him out. There's this big thing going on, and all the world's attention is focused on Arafat's compound. But when I read the book of Ephesians, it's as if I think, you know, where's God's attention focused? Is it on Arafat's compound? I believe, you know, when you read Ephesians, you get the impression that God's attention is focused on the Palestinian Christians and the Jewish Christians in Israel and their attempts to evangelize the people around them. These small bands of Christians that never make the news who are reaching out and being persecuted and being rejected for their faith because they want to see people come to know the Savior, Jew and Muslim, to create a new people out of hostile enemies. But you won't hear that in the news, but it's as if you read Ephesians, like that's what God's looking at, making a new people for Himself through faith in Jesus Christ. We sang that song just before we came to the sermon time, I will change your name. 
You will no longer be called this. You will now be called friend of God. That's the message of Ephesians, that God takes broken, fallible, uh, sketchy people like me, sinful people, and Jesus saves me, makes me a new person, and puts me in his new people called the church. And that everything God is doing in the world today to restore the creation is happening through his people. That's a radically different vision of the church. And that's the vision we find in the book of Ephesians. And that leads us to the second part of the message. That's who you are. So now, act like it. <laughs> that's Ephesians. Start living out who you are in Christ. Not that you have to work up to it. You already are that. You already are God's holy chosen people. So you know what? Be it. Live it from day to day. In fact, Ephesians is a great book. So nicely constructed. It falls into two nice halves. Half number one is Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. And Ephesians 1 through 3 is all about the greatness of God in saving a people for himself. Ephesians 1 through 3 is just Paul telling the people, look how God's blessed you. Look who you are in Christ. You're the new people of God. This is what God's done for you. And he just sort of goes on and on and on and on. And then you hit chapter 4, and it, it's like a big hinge, and the focus changes. In fact, it starts at chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, in light of everything I just told you, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So then in chapters 4 through 6, it's all about how we should live as a result of who we are in Christ. So it's a wonderful book. It's who the church is and how the church should be. It's the, the whys and the how-tos, the indicatives and the imperatives. That's the book of Ephesians. And so, here's what we're going to study. I, I just have to warn you, I am so fired up about this book. I, I'm a man on a mission. I feel like rabid about this book. Uh, I, I started, it's God started putting on my heart back in the winter. It just kind of grew and grew. And so I just feel like, you know, I'm exploding this morning with this book. I, I've been studying it and thinking about it and praying about it. And I want it to be the same for you. I want our church to just marinate in this book. Just like soak in it, just to become, you know, just gooey with Ephesians dripping off us. You know, not so that we can have a bunch of facts in our head and be like, do you know this about Ephesians? But so that we can believe and live this book out. It's incredible. And so here's what we're going to do. Now, you got one of these little green things, bookmarks. This is our sermon calendar for the year. We'll be studying Ephesians through December of 2003, <clears throat> and we're going to be digging in, changing gears. I like to do things different from time to time. So what I want to do now is I want to, instead of taking the 30,000-foot view of a book or the 10,000-foot view of a book or even a 1,000-foot view of the book, I want to get down on the ground, and I want to go through the bushes, you know? I want to just, I want to mine down into Ephesians and find all of the gold and the diamonds and the silver and all of the goodies that are buried way down below. And so we're going to go through this book, sometimes a verse at a time, a couple verses at a time, uh, and then relate it to the whole and try to connect it all. So I, I'm just excited. Again, I want us to just marinate, soak, immerse ourselves in God's Word because it's only through the Word of God that our church will grow spiritually. We can build up the programs, and those are needed and critical, but they're only going to be as strong as we are spiritually. Uh, a second thing I'd suggest to you is if... Uh, you get a commentary on Ephesians. You should own one. I've recommended a couple on page three of the sermon notes. You know, there's a book table downstairs. 
Ask our book table lady for one or wherever you get books. Get a commentary on Ephesians, a really good commentary. There's a couple I recommend to you so that you can go back and study it. Number three, I, I really am asking the whole church to make a commitment to read through the book of Ephesians once a week. Just sit down once a week, read through it. It doesn't take too long. It's just six chapters. We can read it in about, gee, if you're fast, maybe like 10 minutes. Probably take me about 20 minutes. I'm a wicked slow reader. But just read through Ephesians once a week. You're commuting. You're on the red line. You're on the commuter boat. You're flying to New York. You've uh, got a spare moment, quiet moment. The kids are off to school. Just pick it up once a week. Read through Ephesians. You will be astounded at how much you'll get out of it on the 10th reading. You'll be astounded how much more you get out of it on the 20th reading. And you'll be amazed on the 30th reading. You'll be like, I read this 30 times. And this finally jumped out at me. You know, read it, underline stuff, draw little arrows, you know, draw, question things, you know, go back to your commentary that you just bought and read about things that you're wondering about. And you'll just be amazed at how the Word of God will soak into you. And you'll really know this book and you'll know what God has for you in this book. And it, it doesn't take much of a commitment, but again, I want us to marinate. I want us to just get all sappy and gooey with Ephesians all over us. And then my final challenge. This is for those special forces commando people out there. You know, you Navy SEAL types, you Delta Force people. Um, I challenge you. No, no. I dare you to memorize the book of Ephesians. You're like, it can't be done. No, it can. I, I calculated it. If you take a year and three months, it's only 2.4 verses a day. So if you'll memorize 2.4 verses a day, that's easy. My daughter can memorize 2.4 verses a day. You know, she does. She just memorizes. You know, you can do it. Just 2.4 verses a day. Some of you have been in theater. You've memorized more lines than this. You know you can do it. It's, uh, it, it's easy. You just, it just takes the discipline of doing a little bit every day. Anyone who does it, steak and lobster dinner on me. So, I dare you. I would love to shell out a couple hundred bucks on steak and lobster dinner. There you go. I dare you. Ephesians, memorize it. I'm going to try myself. By next week, no. <laughs> yeah, but if you do it next week, I'll buy you a whole cow. So, <laughs> just kidding. Um, <laughs> I know some of you. <laughs> yeah, by the next year, a year and three months, you have to memorize Ephesians. I just want us to soak in this book. <clears throat> I, I want it to penetrate down from our minds and to get into our hearts and, and to become to live out what's here. And I want that for myself, most of all. And if you guys experience God's Word that way too, hey, that's even better. But I, it's just for myself. I want to be and live out this kind of church. What would happen if South Shore Baptist Church and what would happen in your family, what would happen in the communities around us if we would believe and put into practice the vision for the church that we're going to find in Ephesians, what would happen?